Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. It says, in those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate. And were filled and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now, those who had eaten were about four thousand and he sent them away. At the beginning of Mark chapter eight, Jesus still finds himself in Gentile country. Remember, he has left the area of Tyre and Sidon. He has gone back to the northern part and finds himself in Decapolis. And you'll remember the last passage that we looked at. Jesus opened the deaf ears of a man and loosed his tongue so that he could supernaturally speak. Now, the Decapolis was in the ancient world a kind of country within a country. That may not sound familiar to you, but those of you who are familiar with Italy... And Rome, you know that there's a little city within the city. It's called the Vatican. And the Vatican has their own army. And the Vatican has their own currency. And the Vatican has their own law. The same was true in the Decapolis. They had their own currency. They had their own army. They had their own court system. They had their own culture. And... Jesus is working with and responding to the people who are beginning to come to him. Now, the chapter begins with compassion in verses one through nine. Jesus sees the needs of the multitude. The compassion of Jesus becomes a challenge to his disciples. The chapter will continue as Jesus and his disciples will leave the Decapolis and return to the Galilee, where they will be confronted by the religious leaders who will basically demand a sign from heaven. But Jesus won't give them any sign. Rather, he will expose their hypocrisy. The disciples will use the oversight uh, and so they'll leave quickly and then they, they'll wind up in another place without any food to eat. And the disciples will argue about who forgot to pack the falafels. And so Jesus will use that as an opportunity to teach them once again. So the chapter moves basically from compassion in verses 1 through 9 to concern in verses 10 through 21, then condemnation in verses 22 through 26. And then there's a glimpse 
there's a peek into the reality that Jesus will go to Jerusalem and he will be crucified and he will suffer and he will die and he'll come back to life. So the passage that we've just looked at has been called the feeding of the 4,000. Now, this feeding of the 4,000 is not to be confused with the feeding of the 5,000, which we looked at in Mark chapter 6. There are those people who will say, well, is this sort of a new look at an old story? No, they're two different miraculous feasts, at least two, probably more. But there were at least two miraculous feasts during the earthly ministry of Jesus. So the event recorded in Matthew chapter 15, verses 32 through 38, here in Mark chapter 8, is different from the feeding that has taken place earlier. The feeding of the 5,000 takes place in the Galilee. The feeding of the 4,000 takes place in Decapolis. The feeding of the 5,000 is typically oriented towards the Jew. The feeding in the Decapolis is typically oriented towards the Gentile. In the first miracle, Jesus used five loaves and two fish. In this miracle, he used seven loaves, and the text says a few fish. In the first miracle, there were baskets left over. Those baskets are called kofinos. They're the little wicker baskets that people in the ancient world would use to pack a lunch. As a matter of fact, if you want to get an idea what the basket looked like, it looked like a supermarket basket. I mean, if you've ever been to King Supers or Safeway, you know, people are carrying their bags these days. You have little handles and you put your stuff in the bag. The second, it's called Spurus. It's not really a little wicker basket. It's a great big hamper, like a laundry hamper. This is the kind of basket that would have been big enough to put a whole human being into. In the previous chapter, in chapter 7, you'll remember that a Gentile woman begs for the crumbs that will fall from the children's table. Now, Jesus is in Gentile country. And we don't just see crumbs falling from the master's table. We see an amazing banquet that's available for Gentiles as well. And this gives us yet another clue. Is Jesus just simply a Jewish Messiah or is Jesus a Gentile Messiah? Erdman writes, quote, the first miracle in this period intimates that the crumbs of bread might fall from the table for the needy Gentiles. Here, there's an intimation that Jesus, rejected by his own people, will give life to the whole world. He will be the living bread to the nations. So. We might be tempted to look at this as a repetition of the earlier event with no new lesson. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a closer look and see if we can find some fresh insight. Here's what I'd like to do this morning. Break some fresh bread. Look at verse 1. In those days, the multitude being 
very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, understand the passage begins with the pity, with the problem that Jesus faces in verse one, the pity that Jesus feels in verses two and three, the pessimism that Jesus encounters from his followers in verse four. In those days, the days that he's in Gentile Decapolis, the multitude being very great. Where has the multitude come from? Remember, Jesus has opened the deaf ears and loosed the tongue of the person who was formerly deaf and dumb. People have begun to gather. You'll also remember from those of you who've been studying the Gospel of Mark, there was a man who was a demoniac. And you'll remember he also was from this area. And I suspect that he has gone through the hamlets, through the villages, telling people about Jesus. And Jesus has shown up. And when Jesus shows up, so do the crowds. I want you to see the picture just for the moment. Think of the scene. Thousands in the wilderness. Husbands have brought their wives. Wives have brought their children. What started out as a day with Jesus has now turned into two days. And the second day has turned into the third day. And think about it. They didn't come prepared to stay that long. Food is exhausted. Almost certainly they're camping out. And guess what? What are you going to do about running water? Food is gone. Fatigue is setting in. What about sanitation? Now, I want you to just think about this for, for just a moment. Why didn't they just go home? I mean, think about it. You are a mom, you're a dad, or if you've got kids and you've been in a wilderness for three days and you don't have anything to eat, you have limited things to drink, you have, and think about it, there's no porta-potties in the first century. Why don't they just go home? And I want you to think about that question for just a moment. I am going to suggest to you that the reason why they don't go home is because of the presence of Jesus. Think about it for just a moment. Jesus is there. Jesus shows up. There is Jesus. You are seeing Jesus. You're listening to Jesus. You hear his words. You experience his presence. All of a sudden you begin to understand not only his miraculous powers, but his amazing words. And there's something compelling about Jesus. And there's something marvelous about Jesus. There's something intoxicating about Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you had to stay home from work for whatever reason. And you go out and you're driving along, minding your own business, and you're seeing thousands of people everywhere and you're going, don't these people have a job? Don't these people have somewhere to go? I mean, don't they have something to do? And after one day, two days, three days, here they are with Jesus. And you would think, uh, you know, you haven't shown up for work for three days. I mean, aren't you worried about losing your job? And I mean, think about it. You pulled the kids out of school and you're out in the middle of nowhere. And for what reason again? I'm going to suggest to you that when Jesus shows up, 
that when he really shows up, it's impossible to leave. Because Jesus is there, his love is there, his grace is there, his mercy is there, his presence is there. And they're willing to take whatever limitation that they're dealt with. And and now think about it here. So here's the problem. And then we see the pity of Jesus. Look at verse two. I have compassion on the multitude because they've now continued with me three days and they have nothing to eat. Now, again, I want you to think about it. Jesus and the disciples don't go, hey, guess what? We have a free lunch for everyone. And whoever shows up and oh, by the way, Jesus is going to give a message. Now, I'm not suggesting it's like Denver Rescue Mission where people show up and they have to listen to the sermon in order to get food to eat and they have to put up with the ministry and all of that stuff. But sometimes we make a mistake and we think that food and fun and games and fellowship are what people are really looking for. And you know what? I think people need food and fun and fellowship. They need a sense of friendship and relationship. But make no mistake about it. Food and fun and pizza and friendship and fellowship will never, ever substitute for the presence of Jesus. For the reality of Jesus. And so when he says, I have compassion on the multitude. The word compassion translates the Greek word, and I love this word, splunkna. It's a Greek word that meant guts. Visceral organs. In the ancient world, they believed that your affection was in your entrails, the heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys. Remember, when you feel good, you feel good on the inside. And when you feel bad, you feel bad on the inside. People rarely say, I hate you with my heart. They just say, I hate your guts. But what they really mean is they hate you from their guts. In the ancient world, that's what people believed. They believed that the seat of affection and the seat of emotion was inside of you. In the ancient world, this is their way of saying, my heart goes out to you. And that's what Jesus is saying. My heart is going out to the people. The fact that they've been here with me for three days and the food supply is running short and Jesus is not interested in sending them home empty hearted or with an empty stomach. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, later, Peter will write, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. That's the testimony of the New Testament. The testimony of the New Testament is that Jesus thinks about you carefully. He cares for you. Really, it's not just some sort of thing that the preacher preaches, but that God from his heart, thinks about your limitations and deprivations. We are impressed in the New Testament with the fact that Jesus really, really cares about the people that he comes in contact with. He cares about their spiritual condition. He cares about their physical condition. Charles Stanley is fond of saying concerning his radio program, a passion for God and compassion for people. I love that. 
Because it captures the essence of biblical Christianity. It's a passion for God and compassion for people. When you love people, when you care about people, there is this irrepressible urge to help them. You find out about their circumstance physically, financially. You want to help them. William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army after a fruitful life of caring, was buried with high honor. Royalty attended his funeral. Queen Elizabeth, or Queen Victoria, excuse me. Queen Victoria attended his funeral, and next to the queen sat a shabbily dressed woman who placed a flower on his casket as he passed by. And the queen looked at her and said, How did you know him? And she answered, He cared for the likes of us. Here was a man who devoted his life to the least and the last and the lost. I heard the story of a man who fell into a ditch. The realist said, that's a ditch. The optimist said, hopefully you'll soon get out of the ditch. The pessimist said, I think you're going to be in there for a while. The Christian scientist said, you only think you're in the ditch. The newspaper reporter said, I'll give you an exclusive. I'll pay you to give me an exclusive story about life in the ditch. The city official said, do you have a permit to occupy that ditch? The mathematician said, I'm going to calculate the length, the depth, and the height of your ditch. The preacher said, I believe I see three things in this ditch. The IRS agent said, have you paid your taxes on that ditch? And then a man, Jesus, put his hand into the ditch and said, give me your hand. That's what Jesus does. He cares. The sad truth is that our first instinct is often, don't get involved. It's too complicated. It's too expensive. It's going to cause too much trouble. Because caring costs. In verse 3, Jesus says, And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Not Texas, afire. Afar, it means further down the road. The verb translated faint, eklio, is always passive in the New Testament. It means to become weary or slack. It means to generate fatigue. It means to wear out. It means to give out. Jesus isn't one of those preachers content to let people listen to him and not care what happens once they leave or once they walk out the door. The ministry of Jesus extends to the possible consequences of sending them away, and he can't have that happen. 
Many have come from far away. Gamla, Kipos, Gadara. These are probably the closest population centers. The towns and the villages of the Decapolis would get fewer and farther apart. You know what it's like? It's like if you've ever gone on I-70 and you start going east and you go about 15 miles out of town and you're headed towards Lyman and there's a whole lot of nothing. A whole lot of nothing. You go from nothing to nothing. The towns and the villages and no provision. By the way, have you ever been hungry? I mean, really hungry. I mean, hungry, not because you decided to skip a meal or not because you decided to go two or three days without food or not because you have the flu and the flu. There's some sort of mechanism inside of this flu, which turns the knob off in your desire for food and the thought of food makes you sick. I mean, have you gone four days without food, five days without food, six days without food, seven days without food? I think the longest I've ever gone without food might be between eight to ten days. And do you know what happens at about eight to ten days when you haven't had any food? Everything begins to look like food. Everything. Even you begin to look like food. You know, when you meet people and your eyes are shining and people think, oh, this guy really likes me. When I worked for the Department of Social Services, this man came in and he said, I haven't eaten anything in three days. And I said, you know, food still tastes the same. I don't think that it was pessimism or sarcasm that he was looking for. He was trying to communicate a need. Compassion wasn't high on my list of things to do. There was a a, a man in Scotland and he was begging for food and he would tell every kind of story in order to get people to open up their hearts, to give them food. And a very sophisticated lady offered the beggar the equivalent of about 10 cents. And that was at a time when 10 cents would actually buy a meal. And when she handed over the coin, she stressed the fact she said, my man. I need you to understand I'm not giving you this because you told me that pack of lies. Because I didn't believe a word that you told me. I'm giving to this because I'm a good woman and it pleases me to help others. And calmly the beggar looked at the coin and she said, lady. So it pleases you. You feel pleasure in giving me this dime. Well, why don't you give yourself a real treat and give me 50 cents? Really? Compassion. Giving. We move from the problem to the pessimism of the disciples in verse 4. Look what it says. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Now, we're encouraged by Jesus' compassion. We are discouraged by the disciples' persistent unbelief. You know, some might think this isn't persistent unbelief. 
they might think, look, they're just being realistic. There's no farmer's markets. There's no falafel stands. There's no human resources that are going to be able to meet the need. We might think, well, there's a family in the church and their house burnt down and we're going to help them. And we think that's a realistic and achievable goal. Or we might look around in our community here in Littleton and we see problems or pain or we see someone with a utility shut off and we think that we can help them. But then we begin to look at the problems and the pain and the pressure throughout the front range or throughout the the whole state of Colorado and then throughout the nation. And we begin to understand that our resources aren't enough in order to help everyone every time. On the surface, there is no physical resources that are going to be able to help them. Apart from Jesus, there's no real sources, resources that are available for the human soul. We look out into this world and we see the empty hearts and we see the guilty hearts and we see the desperate hearts. And we realize, we realize, we realize that only Jesus can help them. We want pardon. We want grace. We want the assurance that our lives have meaning and purpose and destiny. And then we wonder why people are so willing to reject The source of hope. They're so spiritually starving. But they don't want the bread that has come down from heaven. Clearly the needs of the multitude aren't going to be met with just simple human resources. And I I, I have to believe that the disciples are thinking just like they thought before. Send them away. Look, we're doing without food. They're doing without food. Why not just send them away? But I want you to think for a moment. The multitudes are in the desert place. Where there's no human resources. But each person in the multitude has one common need. They have separate doubts. They have separate dreams. They have separate fears. They have separate disappointments. They have separate sins. But they all share one common necessity. It's the human necessity. And as you look at your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters, your family, your friends, your neighbors, and they'll tell you that they're absolutely happy the way that they are. But make no mistake, there is a common human condition and the common human condition is a spiritual darkness. And this is why Jesus is enough for all and enough for each and enough for everyone. What is it about our Savior's power and what is it about our Savior's love that cause us so quickly to forget it? You see, there are two different incidents. How could they possibly, in just two short chapters, forget what Jesus has done earlier? And how could you forget? How could you forget that 
If he could save you, if he could forgive you, he could redeem you, then guess what? Your neighbor, your family member, your friend is going to be a piece of cake. How inadequate we are, but how fortunate we are that we have a Savior. And look at verse 5. He asked them, How many loaves do you have? (laughs) And they said, Seven. Note how the servant's compassion becomes a challenge. Don't tell me what you don't have. Tell me what you do have. The disciples began the conversation with all the reasons why they couldn't. And Jesus responds with a challenge and command. Tell me what you have. Shamgar had an ox goad. David had a sling. Dorcas had a needle. Rahab had some string. Mary had some ointment. Moses had a rod. Have you some small talent that you'll dedicate to God? Did you come to church this morning saying, I don't have anything? What do you have? What are you willing to dedicate to the Lord? By the way, it says seven small loaves. And what does that say? It reveals just how big a miracle is going to be necessary in order for everyone to be fed. In verse 6, it says, so he commands the multitude to sit on the ground. He takes the seven loaves. He gives thanks. He breaks them. He gives them to the disciples to set before them. And then he sets them before the multitude. Jesus does what Jesus always does. He brings order to the situation. Jesus doesn't bring chaos. Jesus brings order. Some people think, you know, if I think like you, preacher, then nothing is ever going to get done. Really? Really? Where do you see confusion and opposition? It's from the darkness and the unbelief. It certainly isn't because of trusting Jesus. He orders the multitude to sit down on the ground. By the way, in Mark 6:39, it's green grass. Here it's the ground, which leads us to believe that we've moved from spring, perhaps into winter. Jesus gives thanks. He breaks the loaves. He blesses them. By the way, the word give thanks. Eucharistos. It's a word, according to Dr. Thayer, that contains the idea of gratitude, but it also contains another element, and it's worship. It's worship. These are the twin sisters, gratitude and worship. As a matter of fact, one translation has the passage reading, And when he had praised God and gave thanks and asked God to bless them for his use, he ordered that they should be set before them. I like that. There is worship. There is praise. There is thanksgiving. In verse 7 it says, They also had a few small fish and having blessed them he said to them he set them also before them so Jesus performs the miracle 
Jesus multiplies the loaves, he multiplies the fishes, but he uses the disciples as the instrument of service in order to deliver the bread and the fish. By the way, it wasn't unusual to pronounce a blessing over the bread at the beginning of the meal. But the blessing of the name of the Lord prior to the distribution of the fish seems to have been intended to teach the people to thank God. In our culture and society, we say grace before the meal. In the Hebrew culture, they thank God afterwards. Some Italian families are like that. We pray afterwards. Oh, God, I hope this doesn't kill me. Not every Italian person can cook, by the way. I know you might think so, but it's just simply not true. An unnamed Italian person who used to go to singles potlucks would always bring green jello with a spam chunk right in the middle. But there was rhyme and reason to what he was doing because he knew that that's the kind of response. So he knew he could always take it home and use it again. Look what it says in verse 8. So they ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. All ate until they were completely satisfied. And by the way, the seven large baskets, hepta, spiradas. Remember in the earlier miracle, small wicker lunch baskets. Here, huge baskets, capable of carrying a human being. As a matter of fact, that word, spiratus, is exactly the same word used in Acts chapter 9, verse 25. You'll remember when Saul is fleeing for his life, they want to kill him, and he's trying to get out of Damascus alive, and they put him in a basket, same word, and they let him down over the walls of Damascus. And Jesus uses ordinary things as the agency of blessings. The seven small loaves, the the, the small fish. You'll notice that the bread doesn't turn into Panera's and it doesn't go. And then Jesus multiplied the fish and they became Rubio's fish tacos. All of a sudden there was cilantro and cebolla and some onion and some picante. And it was like, it was like wonderful. No. Ordinary fish, ordinary bread, ordinary people doing an extraordinary thing. Jesus gave the food to his disciples and they provide for the people and note it's not angels that are being used it is people God can sometimes take what seems ordinary and foolish in order to meet a compassionate need God can sometimes use something as ridiculous as preaching to awaken in a person's conscience the need for a savior The need for redemption. God could use something as ridiculous as your prayers, your compassion, your sentiment. God could use something as simple 
is you opening up your mouth and telling people the reality that there is a Jesus who is the bread who's come down from heaven. Who's the satisfying solution to the emptiness inside of your heart. I want you to think about this. It's Jesus who notices the hunger. It's Jesus who notices the weariness. It's Jesus who finds the resting place. It's Jesus who provides the meal. And the same is true spiritually. He sees the weariness. He finds the resting place. He provides the meal. But then there's something else that happens. Jesus distributes the food, but then Jesus lays up the food in baskets. You know what that tells me? It becomes a type and a picture of the leftovers in this sense. Each morning I'll get up when I'm doing my devotion and I'll pray and I'll look at Spurgeon's morning and evening devotions. I'll look at Oswald Chambers. I'll read A.W. Tozier. I'll be looking at the men and women throughout the centuries who have broken bread, who have prayed with their Savior. And there is so much richness in the experiences of the saints who have gone before us. Our Bibles, our devotional literature, our hymns, they are like fruit and tasty morsels when food is hard to find. And there's a famine inside of your soul and there's an emptiness inside of your soul and there's a darkness inside of you and you wonder if there's anything at all that can ever fill you up. And you open up your Bible and you begin to read. In Mark 6, we saw the bread of life for the Jews. In Mark 8, we see the bread of life for the Gentiles. And if there are even more Gentiles present, then this becomes the largest outdoor picnic of both Jew and Gentile participating in a single meal together provided by Jesus. And I want you to look at verse 9. Now, those who had eaten were about 4,000. I want you to put your Bible study caps on for just a moment. And ask yourself this question. How does Mark know that it's 4,000? How does Peter know who's telling Mark the story? Remember earlier when Jesus had them gathered together in multitudes? He sat them down in groups of 50. He sat them down in groups of 100. And I'm sure that Peter was thinking, there's 100 and there's 200 and there's 500 and there's 1,000. And then there's another 1,000 and another 1,000 and another 1,000. And all of a sudden it becomes amazingly real that Jesus can do the impossible. And it says after the feeding, Jesus sent them away. The miracle was prompted by the compassion of Jesus. And the miracle is completely unexpected by the disciples. But in this passage, we see 
an amazing insight into the satisfying power of Jesus. We see a picture of need. They have nothing to eat. We see a revelation of love. I have compassion. We see a consideration of grace. I'm not sending them away hungry. We see a question of helplessness. How can anyone satisfy these people? We see a command requiring trust. He commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. We see a manifestation of power. Those who had eaten were about 4,000. And then we see a superabundance of supply. They took up seven large baskets afterward. Isn't that just like Jesus? Picture of need, revelation of love, consideration of grace, a question of helplessness, and a command to trust. What is the command? Sit down. And I'll satisfy you. Sit down and allow me to meet the need. Jesus knows your every need. The Bible says he's touched by your infirmities. But he's also able to abundantly supply the need. You know, the world has three great needs. The need for spiritual food. That's verse one. And what is the spiritual food that's come down from heaven? It's Jesus. The world needs compassion. That's verses 2 through 8. Who is the model of compassion for us? Jesus. Do I expect you to have the compassion of Jesus? No. But you know what I do expect? I expect you to want it. To want it. To look at the heart of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus and say, that's what I want. I want to look at people and I want to care about people the way that he cares about people. And in the end, verse 9, it's the need for evangelism. It's the need that the unbelieving Gentiles, the unbelieving Jews... The people who live in darkness and wickedness and loneliness and emptiness will come to grips with their need for a savior. I was reading this week about George Whitfield again. One day while the famous English preacher was preaching, he was overcome by his emotions and he literally stopped the message. And he just began to cry. He just began to weep quietly. And then he lifted up his hands and he exclaimed, Oh, my hearers, think of the wrath to come. Think of the wrath to come. Flee to Jesus for refuge and salvation right now while there is still time. And one who heard him said, his earnestness brought tears to my eyes. And for weeks afterward, I couldn't get the picture of that concerned soul winner out of my mind. My heart was warmed by his zeal. Eventually, the gospel he preached with such conviction resulted in my own conversion 
What will it take for the darkness inside of you to become light? For the emptiness to become full? For the guilt to become forgiveness? What will it take for the hunger inside of you to be satisfied with the bread that has come down from heaven? The answer is still the same, isn't it? The need for spiritual food? Jesus. The need for compassion? Jesus. The need for evangelism? It's give them Jesus. Jesus is the one who came. Jesus is the one who died. Jesus is the one who rose from the dead. That's why, that's why, that's why we keep urging you. Not to be satisfied with religion and not to be satisfied with church. But to be satisfied with Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord Jesus is the bread that's come down from heaven. And Jesus is our model for compassion. Lord, he cares in ways that we could only begin to care. Lord, we know that Jesus cares about our physical circumstances and our emotional circumstances and our spiritual circumstances. Jesus is equally concerned about the physical deprivation and the financial concern. But Lord, we know in the end there is something that is an overriding concern and it's the question of the condition of the soul. But Lord, we pray that we would Be willing to pray for people's hearts and people's stomachs and people's brains. Lord, we pray that, that Lord, we could learn lessons. That Jesus is in the business of miraculously making a provision. Lord, give us a heart of compassion and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's